From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week, we spend the hour looking at the coronavirus outbreak in Iran. According to the latest official figures, more than 3,500 people have been infected, and at least 107 people have died as the result of the new coronavirus disease making Iran the epicenter of coronavirus in the Middle East. As the toll from the illness continued to mount in their latest efforts to contain the transmission, Iranian authorities have canceled Friday prayers in major cities across the country. And according to the Middle East Eye, Kuwait, Lebanon, Oman, and Turkey have suspended all flights to and from Iranian cities. Major concerts and sporting events have also been canceled across the region. The coronavirus, which is given the official name COVID-19 outbreak, began in Wuhan, China in December. And so far, the virus has spread to more than 70 countries, including almost every country in the Middle East and North Africa. I spoke with Kaveh Khushnud, an infectious disease epidemiologist at Yale University about coronavirus outbreak in Iran and I started by asking him about what we do and don't know about this fast-growing epidemic. You know, it's only been about two months since uh, this outbreak started and we actually, there's a lot we don't know, but there's actually quite a bit we do know. So for example, we know that this particular virus is coming from a family of viruses that cause respiratory infections, both in animals and humans. We also know that this particular virus uh, came from animals. So it's what we call a zoonotic disease. So it originated in animals, most likely bats. And some will argue that it may have gone from bats to pangolins and then come to humans. But basically it didn't start in humans, it started in animals and then came to humans. You know, there are at least four types of coronaviruses uh, we know about, and they they go from, they cause from very mild infections like the common cold to more serious uh, diseases. It's related definitely to another coronavirus that circulated in China back in 2003. And as you recall, that one was called SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome and it infected far less people and killed about almost 800. And it's also related to another coronavirus, which we called Middle East Respiratory Syndrome or MERS. And that one, you may remember, it it was first reported in Saudi Arabia in 2012. So also a coronavirus. Now that SARS one ended, MERS has not ended. It continues quite Can a bit. Can you tell us more when you say MERS has not ended? The Middle Eastern yeah. rest. Well, there are still cases coming up. I haven't kept up mm-hmm. with the numbers, but there are still MERS cases. SARS basically ended. We're not seeing any more new cases of SARS. Mm-hmm. So some of these end by themselves, even without a vaccine, but some of them keep going. H1N1 back in 2009, the current... Uh, influenza vaccine includes sort of protection against H1N1, for example, that was added to the sort of flu vaccine. 
So we know quite a bit. We still obviously don't know enough. We don't know how to treat this quite yet. We don't have a vaccine, but we have learned quite a bit in just two short months. Can you also talk about the fatality rate? Because it was about 2%, now it has moved up to 4%. So how can we accurately measure the mortality rate and also infection rate for coronavirus. And this figure of 3 or 4 or 2% is collected by World Health Organization, and World mm-hmm. Health Organization receives its information from nation states, correct? That is correct. They cannot independently collect data. They rely, and we can talk about this, they rely on the ministries of health of each country to be very transparent and share their data. And the truth is, if the countries choose not to, then there's nothing WHO can do. They rely on the governments to be honest and transparent. So the number you were asking, so you know, we refer to it as case fatality rate. Uh-huh. So basically, uh, simply put is, how many people are infected with a particular pathogen, in this case, uh, this coronavirus, and of those that are infected, how many die? So as you can imagine, we, so the denominator is the total number of people who've been infected. The truth is we don't know exactly how many people are infected. Exactly. So what we have is a preliminary case fatality uh, number, which is based on our best estimates of how many people are infected. And it keeps changing. So the case fatality rate was seen as about 2%. As you said, actually, some studies suggest that it's less than that. It's about 1%. But then WHO just was it yesterday announced it's larger than that, almost 3 point some percent. Yeah, because the death rate in certain countries have jumped quite drastically, it, including yeah. Iran. Right. So we don't know, for example, in Iraq, we don't know how many people are actually infected. And remember, if if somebody has a mild symptom and they think they have a common cold, which they may, but let's say they have coronavirus infection, but they have a very mild symptom or they're completely asymptomatic. So they're not going to be counted as part of the denominator. Mm. So we are only going to look at those who came to the hospitals and clinics and they were registered as a coronavirus case. And then the num- percentage of those who, who pass away, then that's what determines the case fatality, which could be completely exaggerated because the denominator, the actual denominator is probably much, much larger, but we don't know who they are. Professor Khoshnud, when we are dealing with a global epidemic, such as coronavirus, what is the best way to educate people without creating an environment of uh, panic and hysteria? I think that's an excellent question. And frankly, when it comes to an infectious disease outbreak such as this, the most important thing for a government to do is to be transparent, honest, and try to gain the trust of the public, both to understand the extent of the problem like how many people are infected, and also to be able to do something about it. If the governments hide information, suppress information, or put misinformation out there, 
and don't get the trust of the public, the public is going to be reluctant to come and get tested, to be screened. So then the government would not know how many people are really infected. So we don't have that. Second, when government wants to intervene, when they, whether, whether it is, you know, if they have a vaccine, hopefully, or a treatment, or they want to do some sort of isolation or quarantine, whatever it is, whatever strategy they want to roll out, if they have not gained the trust of the public, the public is going to push back. They're not going to listen. They're not going to show up. Or, or worse, if they say, oh, this is all fake, they may, even if they have some symptoms, they may continue to go to public gatherings and ignore the advice of the public health officials. So this is the time. And by the way, I really feel this is the time for science and public health experts to step up, and that's one of the reasons I'm choosing to talk with you, mm-hmm. is we, we have an obligation to share information with the public because as you said, there's so much fear and paranoia, and there's also a lot of confusion. And I'm blaming some of that is, first of all, we need to, scientists, public health experts, need to share their information with the public at large, not just with each other, you know, we, you know, publishing a paper in a peer-reviewed journal is wonderful, but that's not going to communicate to the public. So we have an obligation to speak up, but also the government has an obligation to rely on experts and don't politicize this, which I'm seeing a lot, and I'm sure you're noticing too. This is a time for science to speak up. Otherwise, public will, will lose trust in the government. How much information is being shared amongst the scientific community? If you go back to the original country of China, China did a far better job sharing information about the virus and the outbreak than they did with SARS. So with SARS, it took weeks, if not maybe months, quite a few number of infections, quite a few deaths before they actually announced to the world that this is what was happening. This was quite different. Within a matter of days, they did let the, the world know that this was a new thing that was popping up in, you know, in Wuhan. The other thing they shared was the genetic information about the virus, which was hugely important. They put it out there for the public, which you know, without that genetic data, you cannot develop a diagnostic test. These kits people are talking about, you can't develop a kit for a new virus unless you know the genetic information. And China did put it out there very quickly, and that's what allowed CDC, WHO, others to develop a diagnostic test. And of course, they also need that genetic information to develop a vaccine. So this was a better response than SARS epidemic. In terms of science, I feel I'm, I'm seeing a lot of medical journals, top-tier medical journals that, of course, have a lot of resources. They are publishing sort of open access. So they're publishing papers about coronavirus or COVID-19 with public access. So anybody can access them, which is, I think, is very, very important. This is a time where science needs to be made available to public at large. Uh, I'm seeing CDC, and again, it has to do with resources and transparency. Some governments are putting sort of daily updates as the information becomes available, they make it available to public. 
I'm not sure every government is doing that, frankly. I'm not sure to ask the colleague, if people in Iran want to find out, for example, what's the update, is there a, is there a platform, is there a website? And my understanding is it doesn't exist. So let's say Iran, mm-hmm. Iran Health Ministry and Iranian government shares its information with the United States or World Health Organization. And then right. a, a pharmaceutical company in the United States develops a vaccine. Okay. That doesn't mean that Iranians are going to have access to the vaccine or any other remedies, correct? Right. So that's a good question. So when we say share information, you know, we have to be more clear. What are we talking about? There is information about just numbers, like how many infections have you uh, detected so far? How many tests you've conducted? What are their symptoms? What are the illnesses? So these are like, I would call it epidemiological and clinical data. That um, that cannot be used for you know preparing a vaccine per se. You need more genetic information and etc. So the issue you raise is a good one and it has come up before. Some low middle income countries, I believe Indonesia was one of them that chose not to. So WHO, of course, strongly encourages uh, every country, whenever there's a new outbreak of some sort, please share your information, including genetic information immediately available. But as you said, sometimes this information gets used by pharmaceuticals and others develop treatment or vaccines. And there are, to my knowledge, there's not a clear process by which we make sure those products are made available to the countries that share this data with them. So that's that's a very niche area. I think it's an important one. But I, I was really referring to just, just basic epidemiological data. Mm-hmm. Tell us how many cases have you identified? Are you screening people? You know, just basic information. So because this is a, it's not being called a pandemic yet, but everybody agrees this is an urgent public health issue of international importance. What that means is every country not only has an obligation to protect its own citizen, it also needs to share information about what's going on in their country with the world at large to be a global citizen, to be part of the international community. If you don't share your information, then other countries don't know how to manage including travel and whatnot. So there is an obligation for every state and every government to be transparent because it helps with the global response. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, this, uh, the Western countries who have the ability to develop these um, vaccines, they should be able mm-hmm. to provide made it, available. made yes. available to countries who cannot afford it. So I think I wanted to ask you about this word pandemic. There has been a lot of discussions and debates about what to call this stage of this disease. As some 90 countries are struggling to contain it. Some call it epidemic. Some argue that coronavirus outbreak should be now called a pandemic of global proportion. And there are those that use these terms epidemic and pandemic interchangeably. Can you shed some light of what the significance of either definition is and how it will impact the response? Yeah. So, you know, epidemic is basically when you have have an outbreak of a disease beyond the expected number. 
Now, this in this case, the expected number was zero. So because there was no uh, COVID-19 uh, or coronavirus disease, this is a new thing. So as soon as you start seeing cases, that's an outbreak. And once it starts spreading, it becomes an epidemic. Now, um, it is kind of a, I must say, I can understand there's a bit of a confusion about epidemic and pandemic, because some would argue that now that it's gone to over 80 countries, that has reached an epidemic proportion. Um, the concern, I think, and WHO is, is really the agency that has to kind of declare that as a pandemic. My sense of it is, and I've been reading about uh, you know, the head of the WHO talking, I think the concern is pandemic gives you the impression that the disease is, the, pan, the epidemic has basically is out of control. Uh, it has affected the entire world and it is not manageable anymore. So WHO's concern is by calling it pandemic, um, there may be some just worry that we can no longer contain this. And what they're saying is, yes, it's true that it's spread way beyond China, it's 80 some uh, countries, but still it's relatively small in numbers. Yeah. And if you look at the cases in many of the countries, overwhelming majority of them are not what we call community transmission, um, meaning we don't know where the infection came from, the exposure came from. Overwhelming majority of them could be directly traced back to, oh, you traveled to one of the epicenters or you live with someone, you're in close proximity contact with someone who came from one of these epicenters. Community transmission is when you're being diagnosed, then you're asked, have you traveled to any of these countries? No. Do you, um, somebody that you live with or a close contact with has gone to any of these countries? No. So the answer is, oh, we don't know where this came from, which means that the uh, transmission has gone beyond these epicenters. It's truly become uh, a widespread uh, transmission from person to person. So um, my sense is it's it's going to reach the epidemic proportion soon. I don't know when. But again, I think WHO's reluctance to call it a pandemic is just worry about creating, increasing the panic. Yeah. And I think the, the other thing is WHO is saying, what difference does it make? In terms of our control strategies, like, that's not really going to change the playbook. Like we should be dealing with this, whether we call it an epidemic or a pandemic. We'll talk about the control mechanisms, but let's switch gears and talk about what's happening in the Middle East and specifically in Iran. Back in January, the World Health Organization, I remember, raised concerns about the outbreak of coronavirus in countries with weak public health care system. The virus, as we know, has swept across the Middle East and North Africa with nearly every country in the region confirming cases of the new virus. And Iran has become the epicenter of this virus in the region. And of course, circumstances are different and so are the responses to this. But one alarming factor is that in the Middle East and, and North Africa, we are dealing with several countries that are fragile or on life support. 
because mm. of long periods of war, conflicts, you know, such as Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Libya. Mm-hmm. How could these fragile systems combat public health crises of this scale? Yeah, no, that's a good question. In fact, I'm not seeing much written about this or talked about. Now, looking at the data, we are not seeing large numbers being reported in some of these fragile states, as you were mentioning. But that that could either be because that's the reality, or it could simply be that, as you said, they may not have a robust health system, including surveillance system. So they don't, or they don't have the resources, such as the kits that are necessary to test. So it may be that the actual reality is that there are a lot more cases that we know about, but there's not enough human resources or laboratory resources to know exactly what's going on. I'm guessing that would be true in many parts of Syria, in Yemen, and parts of Iraq, etc., Libya. Um, so the truth is we don't really know what's going on. Um, I am very concerned because if the cases, the outbreaks begins to get into these communities, which again, they may be already going on, their ability to respond is quite limited. It requires well-trained people. um, And it also, the other thing you need, back to what we said in the beginning, you need trust of the public. In some of these communities that have gone through conflict uh, and there's factions and different groups in charge of various territories and whatnot, it's very difficult to to get the trust of the public. There are also tens of millions of people who are refugees that lack basic healthcare services. That's yeah. that's also a problem. And also, you know, many of these um, places, there is very poor sanitation, hygiene. There's not a lot of access to clean water, just basic sanitation, hygiene, or food, or you know, things you need to to take care of yourself and your family. So. It's going to be, it may take a much larger toll once it reaches some of these fragile communities, vulnerable communities. Why is this not getting more attention? Yeah, that's a big, big issue. Clearly, there's, you know, political dimension to this. So it's not based on just health needs. It's, um, the, there's a political uh, aspect to the health response. Um, also, keep in mind a lot of the displaced populations, whether they're internally displaced or they've been uh, displaced to another sort of neighboring country of that. First of all, the countries in which they're displaced to, and this is something a lot of people don't appreciate, overwhelming majority of people who are forcibly displaced due to war and conflict don't end up in Europe and the United States. They end up next door to the country in which they left. So... They leave Syria. They don't end up in the United States or Europe. They end up in Lebanon. They end up in Jordan. They end up in Turkey. Some of these countries, for example, Lebanon, has very limited resources, health resources themselves. They have a very um, fragile health system themselves. They are not um, fully you know, able to take care of their own citizens. And now they have, you know, let's say, about a million Syrians who've come to small country of Lebanon of about 5 million people. Yeah. That's 
so the the resources to provide healthcare and you know I've traveled and spent some time in Lebanon and many of the issue, health issues are ignored but frankly there's not resources and including um, the more routine health issues so whereas some of the humanitarian organizations are there focused on vaccinations and personal hygiene and other things which is good but the more routine everyday health issues diabetes hypertension um, family planning uh, cancer prevention and treatment those things are frankly quite neglected mm. because the humanitarian organizations will say well that's not really our focus we are focused on more acute issues um, that's not our job but many of the displaced are not displaced for days or weeks they're displaced for years so, in, you know, the Syrians that I have met in Lebanon, they've been there now seven, eight, nine years. Their health issues are the health issues, chronic conditions that many of us go through. Again, like these non-clinical diseases. So it's a whole topic about uh, why the health of the, those displaced have been ignored. But at the end of the day, I think it is a political decision. And it's also the fact that um, they kind of fall through the crack. It's not clear who's responsible for their health and well-being. Majority of people who die don't die as a direct result of conflict, but they, they die as indirect cause, and it could be happening years later. Uh, whether it's you know poor management of their chronic disease, whether it's mental health tolls that has taken, uh, brain drain, their physicians, healthcare workers have left, so they don't have access. So there are many, many uh, factors that play a role in why the health of the displaced um, are deteriorates. Mm. I'm speaking with Professor Kabe Khoshnud, an infectious disease epidemiologist at Yale University, about the coronavirus outbreak in Iran. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. those of you joining us now, I am Malihe Razozan, and you are listening to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. This week, I'm speaking with Professor Kabe Khoshnud, who's an infectious disease epidemiologist at Yale University, about the coronavirus outbreak in Iran. According to the latest official figures, more than 3,500 people have been infected with the virus. 
and more than 107 people in Iran have died as the result of the new coronavirus disease. Uh, today is March 5th. According to Iran's mm-hmm. health ministry spokesman, mm-hmm. so far 3,513 people have been infected with the virus and 107 people have died. But many, including some officials in Iran, say the real figures are higher than what's been reported. The government of Iran has been accused of hiding initial cases of coronavirus infections, trying to cover the exact number of people who've been infected and have died as a result. Can you remind us how coronavirus found its way to Iran? Uh, Frankly, I don't know, and I'm not sure there's any um, study that has actually shown that. What I've seen and read in, in various papers and reports and articles is that, you know, Iran, as a result of the U.S. sanction, has increased its trade uh, relationship with China, and uh, including the city of Wuhan. It's a place where uh, there was a lot of, you know, flights going back and forth, merchants just and going in. And there still are, by the way. I did not know that, yes. and I'm shocked. I am they shocked. Are. They may be the only country that's still continuing, but doesn't it won't the Chinese restrict? Because as you probably know now, as the numbers are plateauing and actually dropping in China, and more and more cases are being diagnosed outside of China, including Italy, Iran, South Korea, they are now Chinese government is putting restrictions on people coming to China from these other countries, including Iran. So I'm surprised that they still uh, they are restricting travel uh, and asking for self quarantine of anybody coming from Iran because they're worried that they are bringing the infection to China, which is has already happened in a number of cases from Italy and I think from from Iran. An Iranian news agency has reported that Mahan Airline has continued its flights to China. So according to Radio Free Europe, the Iranian student news agency had an article titled Story of Continuation of Mohan Flight to China, but a few hours later it it altered both the text and the headline, which now quotes an official of the civil aviation organization saying we are only bringing medical equipment. That would be very strange and frankly inappropriate because this is... This is, uh, I mean, it's literally two epicenters connecting. That's just not a advisable thing to do. As a, from a public health perspective, this is not what you should be doing. You should be restricting travel between two epicenters. Absolutely. You know, in terms of numbers, I've been trying to, you know, I don't live in Iran. I live in the States. I've been trying to figure out what the numbers look like in Iran. And the truth is, it's very difficult to collect data. There are no reliable sources. I, I cannot find, uh, whether within the Ministry of Health, the numbers tend to oscillate quite a bit. The other thing is because Iran did not openly discuss its first few cases in Rome, and uh, the officials, I think it came out later that because the first few cases were diagnosed at the time of elect parliamentary election, and at the time where sort of anniversary of the revolution, seems like the government leadership sort of made a decision 
that it was more important to have these public gatherings of celebration of the anniversary and also for for a large participation in the parliamentary election which was dismal by the way well yes (laughs) (laughs) but unfortunately that decision had severe consequences Mm. if you know you have a new sort of infectious disease circulating in your country you need to make a decision about what's more important the safety of your citizens or your election or your celebration of your you know revolution so that decision had negative consequences but also i feel like then you lose the trust of the public because once the public realizes oh, the officials were aware of cases in Rome but chose not to disclose it then it's going to be much dif- more difficult to to regain that trust. So they need to be, and I to this day, I'm not sure. I think there's a little bit more transparency, but I, I, again, I'm seeing conflicting news coming out of Iran about exactly how many cases, and and I'm also seeing some journalists talking about, or, or physicians and nurses talking about how they've been warned not to disclose information, which again, you don't want to do that. Exactly. You, you you don't want to do that. You don't want, because then again, public doesn't know, can't trust you. Because if the doctors and nurses are being told by security forces, you are not to disclose any information, keep it a secret, then that's, that's just going to undermine the trust. People in Iran have been very active on social media, sharing information and also posting video clips and sharing personal stories. Iran has also come under pressure to stop hiding the true number of fatalities and infections. That also has played a big role. So again, there is is an obligation to the international community to be transparent. And I think you're right. There is uh, increasing pressure on the government to be transparent. What I've seen last few days is they are restricting, there are travel restrictions. I believe the schools are closed now. So... Yeah, I mean, the truth is, these are tough decisions government needs to make, but they need to prioritize the safety of their people. Are you in contact with physicians and um, healthcare Where? workers in, in Iran? No, no, I don't have a direct contact. I just a little bit of social media, but no. But I'm, I know the, the context that I do have, I know some physicians and nurses in China, and I know this, this outbreak has taken a huge toll on them. There is um, the burden on, you know, caring for all these individuals. And some of them are literally working like 24-7. They have no... I remember when it first started, I talked to some of my doctor friends in China, and they said, we are not even allowed to go home. Basically, they stay in the hospital all day, all night. But on the positive side, I would say I'm also aware that one of my colleagues, for example, is a medical anthropologist, but he would go every day to the hospital just to provide psychological support to the healthcare workers who were sort of stuck, uh, high stress. So there's also been, I think any outbreak brings both the, the good and the bad in people. Some people um, use it to their advantage. Others step up and, and actually commit to, to care for the public as much as they can. So I think we're, we are seeing both sides of this. And I think that's true at the individual level, but it's also true at sort of governmental or professional level. Professor Khushnu, the lack of government transparency, absence of free, uh, free press, inequality, 
corruptions or long-standing problems in Iran. Then we have the U.S. sanctions on Iran, which has exacerbated the situation for ordinary people, and it has also greatly impacted the healthcare system. What is your assessment of Iran's healthcare system, and especially when we look at key health indicators? And if you look at some of the health indicators in Iran, including like vaccination coverage of children, it's actually quite high. Iran has, you know, won awards for reaching, you know, high uh, coverage rate for childhood vaccination, other things. I know they have these sort of, um, I don't know if they're referred to as village doctors, but basically healthcare workers who are in rural communities. Primary care in, in Iran is pretty robust. So the health system itself seems to be quite well functioning, but you also need kind of transparency. And what seems to be going on is that the health officials don't necessarily have the final say. And this is a time for, as I said before, this is a time for health officials to have the final say, for them to to make decisions. What I'm not sure is happening is that they they do have the authority to, to say what's going on. I feel like they are being constrained because other officials of the government are saying there are other more important things, such as, you know, we are celebrating our revolution, we are having elections. These are very important priorities for the government. You, you should not be disclosing information which will somehow damage these. So, yes, the health system, I think, is robust to my knowledge, has adequate resources, but if the public doesn't trust the health system, they may not make take advantage of it. Just because you have vaccination, just because you have test kits for whatever diseases, doesn't necessarily mean people gonna go and seek those services if they don't believe, buy into the sort of government's response. How concerned yeah. are you? I am very concerned if they and not if they if they don't become more transparent and share the information they have with the public at large. I am very concerned. I think that again, I've been just trying to figure out what's going on from from far away. There seems to be a bit more transparency over the last few days compared to the to a few weeks ago, a month ago, where there was almost no information coming in, or there was denial, like outright denial of. Oh, this is not a problem. This is this is not something we need to worry about. It seems to be changing, which I'm hoping is because the sort of the public health officials are having more of a say. And also, as you said, I think the public at large is just active. Um, I did a Instagram uh, thing with uh, Kaveh Madani, who's who's at Yale, and people had so many questions. The Iranian public have so many, and frankly, a lot of the questions are just everyday questions about what should I do? Should I take my child to school? Should I go to work? Should I buy food from stores? Should I buy bread? And also there was a lot of, I would say, misinformation. There was some bit of a conspiracy theory stuff. So I saw just that one uh, 40-minute conversation I had and an Instagram, people asking questions. I recognized, my God, how, what a tremendous need there is for information. And I feel like the government has an obligation to provide that. You've got to have, people are freaking out. Some of them are 
making decisions which are not probably the best decisions. And also there was all these things about pet, they, were, they had concerns that this virus is somehow coming from dogs or cats. And I heard yeah. some dogs were being uh, killed, which I was very sad to hear because there's no information whatsoever saying that dogs are a source of this infection. Mm. Well, that's where, first of all, I, I don't know what percentage of the public in Iran had access to social media, but I have a feeling it's probably pretty big, actually. And of course, through them, then they can be informing yeah. others. So I would say that's an excellent, that is all these platforms, governments, public health officials, academicians in Iran should step up and do that. You know, the universities in the United States are doing that. Johns Hopkins has this whole platform where they kind of track every day, several times a day, they update the data. A lot of the universities are doing that. I feel like this is a time for public health to step up, whether they're government or academicians. We have to engage with the public at large. There is also an acute shortage of face masks in Iran, which is really crucial for healthcare providers and also sanitizers uh, missing. It is an issue. I would just want to clarify on the mask thing. You probably know that the mask is really, first of all, there's many different kinds of masks. The masks that are most helpful are frankly not cheap. And also they have to be kind of fitted for an individual. Mm. So these, some of these regular masks are not helpful at all. These droplets, uh, you know, could be, Entering, you know, if, if the mask is not properly constructed or fitted, they're not going to protect you. The other thing is, mask is appropriate for people who have, well, either this infection or another respiratory infection and are coughing and sneezing, mm-hmm. not to protect them, but to protect others. So if you're sick, if you have some sort of a respiratory illness, it is, and you're going to public. It is appropriate for you to be wearing a mask if you can access it. But for the general public at large that has no symptoms, uh, have, putting the mask is not going to protect them. And unfortunately, what it does, and this is also happening to some extent in the United States, when people, just everybody rushes to buy masks, there, then there's a shortage of supply for healthcare workers who are in clinics and hospitals where they are constantly exposed to people with infections, they're the ones who need these masks. So the priority should always be let the healthcare workers have masks and let those who have some sort of respiratory illness have masks. And uh, finally, countries around the world have tried to contain this virus by canceling public events, restricting travel. China issued the largest quarantine in human history, locking down an estimated 45 million people. While South Korea health officials have taken to spraying disinfectants in public places like markets, we see that happening in New York. Iran also has adopted similar strategies, disinfecting schools, buses, metros, the streets, and other public places. What do you think about these responses to contain the transmission? And for a country like Iran, like Lebanon, Mm. what do you think is the best way to contain this virus? Well, first of all, I mean, quarantine does have a role to play in outbreaks control, but... Um, as you said, this is unprecedented. What the Chinese government did has never been done before, the, the scope of it, the scale of it. Now, if if the outbreak is super focused in 
let's say one city, then, and you have reason to believe that it has not gone to other places, to completely lock down a city, although it seems very exaggerated, might be appropriate. And, you know, we don't quite know yet whether what China did, let's say when they restricted, completely banned travel to and from Wuhan, did that actually help to reduce transmission to the rest of China and also to the world at large? Did it delay at least by weeks, if not months, uh, further spread? We don't quite know that, but, you know, there's some sort of optimism that, yes, that may have helped. Now, once, once the infection becomes more widespread and it becomes more of a community transmission, as we talked about, then these, these measures don't work, frankly. It's no longer, you, you don't even know where the infection is. So, uh, you know, limiting, completely locking down an entire city, it doesn't seem appropriate anymore. Um, it's back to what we said in the beginning, which is this is where you need to just communicate to the public and encourage them to be conscious of their health, to do everything they can, to wash their hands and not touch their face and so on. But also if they do have symptoms to self-isolate themselves and report themselves, etc. So quarantine has a role, but you know, there's literature out there about some of the ethical issues around quarantine, especially if it's like an entire city. Now, in terms of what you were saying about like going to, you know, spray the streets and whatnot. Does it help? Perhaps. But I think some of those strategies of like publicly going and spraying roads and and some of the buildings and whatnot, I think that's more about government communicating that we care Mm -hmm. and we're doing stuff. Mm -hmm. Again, it's part of like communicating and gaining trust. Now, touching surfaces that have potentially been infected by someone with an illness who has coughed and you know, sneezed and, and something. Yes, that's a source. But, you know, roads, I'm not sure people are going to be touching roads. People are going to be touching, you know, doorknobs and chairs. And so those kinds of surfaces, so they, uh, whether in a, there is an airport or public transport, uh, trains, buses, etc., keeping them clean where people are touching those surfaces by hand and then touching their face and potentially taking the uh, virus. That is obviously a good thing to do, but some of these more public uh, spraying and whatnot, I think that's that has a different message linked to it. So it's about uh, repairing their public image. Yeah, to say we are doing something, we are not just, just sitting quietly, we are out there, we are engaged, we are doing what we can. So it, I think it's a sending a you know message. So before we end, do you have anything else to add? Well, one thing I just want to clarify the the name because I know it's a bit confusing. So the virus has been called SARS-CoV-2. So SARS, of course, severe acute respiratory symptom, mm-hmm. COVID being coronavirus two to distinguish it from first coronavirus that was associated with SARS. So that's the name of the virus. The disease has now been called COVID-19. So that means coronavirus disease. And 19, of course, is 2019. So I wanted to clarify that. 
And it's also interesting why it has such a generic name as opposed yes. to calling it's it. It's very intentional. Yeah. You know, again, WHO usually uh, puts together a task force and they name new viruses, this being one of them. And they're very conscious of trying to avoid stigmatizing any city, any population by calling it the Wuhan virus or something like that. You are stigmatizing yeah. a, a city which is inappropriate and doesn't really helpful. So the idea is to, you know, give it a name. Of course, you do need to come up with a name, but you don't want to be stigmatizing. And also, that also can give the false impression that, oh, I'm far away from Wuhan. That's not my problem. Mm -hmm. This is not my disease. So you're just trying to make it generic. So that's what they came up with. It usually takes a while for them to come up with the name, but they did. So let me ask you, as someone who has studied infectious diseases, do you think mm -hmm. we can overcome this one? Um, I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, if you think of SARS, I feel like, yes, potentially. I mean, this SARS was a lot deadlier. Uh, SARS, I think the case fatality rate was around 9%, almost sometimes approaching 10%. We don't know exactly what the case fatality for this is, but I think it's probably going to be around 1%. Um, however, it is more infectious, unfortunately. So a much larger percentage of the public is going to get infected. But remember that over 90% are have very mild symptoms. They get some cough and maybe some respiratory issues, but then it goes away without any treatment whatsoever. So am I optimistic? Yes especially if governments continue to be transparent and share data with one another and also share strategies that have worked and strategies that have failed. Professor Kaveh Khoshnut is an infectious disease epidemiologist at Yale University. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.